It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Elton John is one of the most highly acclaimed and successful artists of all time. He has sold over 300 million records and CDs worldwide, won five Grammy Awards, a Tony Award, and an Academy Award. Joining us today to talk about the life and legacy of Elton John is Mark Bego, author of Rocket Man. Mark has written over 65 books involving rock and roll and show business. His writing often appears in People, Us, Billboard, Record World, and Cosmopolitan. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So, Mark, you're the author of biographies in the rock and roll and show business worlds. What got you interested in writing these types of books? I have to say it started out in college. I used to work for the um, college newspaper at Central Michigan University where I studied journalism. And I discovered that if I had a record review column in the local uh, college paper, I got free albums, which I thought was the coolest thing when I was (laughs) 17. Then I discovered if I did concert reviews, I got free concert tickets. I was like, oh, my God, I love this. So I got a call one day at my apartment, and uh, it was ABC Records calling to say, "Uh, Steely Dan is coming to your campus to do a concert. Would you be interested in interviewing Steely Dan? Well, yes. (laughs) I was, oh, my God, I thought this was a dream. So in the middle of the interview, this light went on in my head, and I thought, interview rock stars. That's what I want to do for a living, and that was the beginning of it. Mark, what was so your first? I was going to say, Mark, what ahead. was your first big story? My first big story, probably Crosby, Stills, and Nash, was a big one, and on, on campus. Then a big story for me when I got to New York was an Us Magazine article I did on uh, Billy Davis and Marilyn McCoo from the Fifth Dimension. That became a really big thing. Then I was, I became the uh, nightlife editor of Q Magazine, uh, spelled C-U-E, as opposed to the British magazine, just the letter Q. It was the height of the disco era, and I got to interview Donna Summer for a cover story, Cher for a cover story, and Rod Stewart for a cover story. I had made it, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you've probably been in this business a long time, too. You know, as soon as you get comfortable and start, you know, reveling in what you've accomplished, the bottom often gets pulled out of it, and Q Magazine ceased to exist. So I was back to uh, ground zero, and I started really concentrating on books. You know, as I was listening to your story, it was taking me back to being a college graduate. I had a, a degree in marketing, and my first job was for a music video television station that was supposed to rival MTV. We were U68 on the old U68 television. We had. Um, I love it. And I love it. And I, it was similar. I was a young kid meeting those types of people, thinking that you know I had the dream job, and we know who won that war <laughs> and yeah. why I'm doing what I'm doing now. But I totally get it. So, you know, you start off on this career doing what you love, and I don't think there's anything better that you can do in life. I don't think so either. I think, you know, there's an old quote, um, and I, I can't remember who actually said it, that if you do what you love for an occupation, you never work a day in your life. You're doing what you love. And that's, that's exactly how I feel about 
writing books about rock stars and show business. This was what I always dreamed of doing. And I'll be darned, I'm doing it. <laughs> and, you know, you've worked with just about anyone who's anyone. And is there a favorite story over the years that you'd like to share with us? I have some really interesting stories. I've gotten to travel with celebrities, especially my dear friend Mary Wilson of the Supremes, who's an absolute doll. And we've got a, a huge book out at the moment called Supreme Glamour. Um, but I also get to find myself in situations with celebrities that I kind of look at myself and go, can you believe you're sitting next to Rod Stewart in a limo? It's, it's really quite exciting. Uh, one of my favorite stories was being in Aretha Franklin's home in uh, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan in the 80s. I went there to do a radio interview for a now uh, non-existent network called Westwood One Radio, and I had broadcast equipment with me. And uh, I was to ask Aretha different questions about her career, and then I was to, you know, have a moment of silence so they could patch in who, whatever the DJ was at whatever local station. And then Aretha would give her answers. Well, after about an hour and a half or so, Aretha said to me, she goes, okay, stop the tape. I've got to go in the kitchen and check on something. I said, okay. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm sitting on Aretha Franklin's sofa <laughs> in her living room. So Aretha comes out. And she says, uh, okay, ask a few more questions. So I asked a few more questions. She goes, wait, i got to go back to the kitchen. Okay. So she went back to the kitchen. She sat down. She goes, okay, ask me another question. So I asked her a few more questions. She said, okay, I've got to go to the kitchen again. She went in the kitchen. This time, she stuck her head around the corner, and she said, chicken's done. Interview's over. The maid will show you the door. <laughs> that was the end. Aretha was not going to share a drumstick anything that day. I always thought that was kind of a hoot. That's like, okay, that's Aretha. That's the real Aretha I got to see. I actually thought the story was going to end with you being invited into the kitchen to eat. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that being the beginning of my rock and roll cookbook I did two years ago. But no, it didn't happen. <laughs> so, Mark, now you've written about the life of Elton John. When did you first meet Elton? I met Elton in the 80s. Um, there's a gentleman in his circle, Tony King. Tony has worked for the Rolling Stones and Elton on and off over the last 50 years. And uh, it was Tony King who took myself and my dear friend David Salador, my publicist, backstage to meet Elton. And uh, it, was, it was really quite a thrill to see him and then go out into Madison Square Garden and watch him perform and go, oh, my God, I was, I was just shaking hands with him a minute ago. <laughs> Here he is entertaining 18,000 people. Um, so that was, that was really kind of an exciting moment. I was reintroduced to Elton by my dear friend Mary Wilson of the Supremes. She uh, was invited to the 2016 Oscar party that Elton John hosts every, uh, every year. And uh, I was her guest, and we got to meet Elton again, who's very gracious, really a nice host, and uh, very exciting to see him again. And I'm fortunate enough to say that Mary and I have gone to two subsequent Elton John Oscar parties, and he's, he's always delightful, always working the room. You don't know who's going to be in the room. It could be anybody, and uh, it, it's quite exciting. And he's, he's an exciting guy who loves this business and really kind of has devoted himself to his music. And, you know, he's, I, he's someone I identify with, Joan, um, because he's someone who grew up sitting in his room listening to records and dreaming he could be part of the entertainment business. And basically that's, that's what I did as well. So Elton really has a, uh, an interesting parallel in my life, at least in my mind. What obstacles did Elton have to overcome, and you as well? What did you both have to overcome in your life to achieve the success that you do? 
Well, Elton was kind of a chubby uh, kid in in uh, England, and he was very talented from a very early age. And although he was trained in classical music, when rock and roll came along, he decided he really wanted to be into rock and roll. And as he has said so many times, he looked anything like a rock, you know, but like a rock star. He was not, you know, sexy or suave or, or interesting like a Rod Stewart. He, he couldn't move like a Mick Jagger. Um, he certainly wasn't, uh, didn't have the charisma of uh, 1950s, early 60s uh, Elvis Presley. So he really, it was a dream of his, and he was dying to break out of his shell and become the flamboyant, <laughs> glitter and sequin-covered Elton John we know now. So he was someone who also put up with a lot in his childhood. He felt like he was kind of neglected by his father and uh, placated by his mother. One of his great champions in his life was his stepfather, Fred, uh, whom he has spelled his name backwards and always called him Durf for, for the entirety of his life. Um, but he was, he was someone who longed to really blossom forth into becoming a rock star and overcame all obstacles, and he did. And, and it's amazing, the career that he's had, really amazing. Well, and I like the moral of that story because so many of us have these blocks that we put up for ourselves that keep us from achieving the things that we want to. And and as you described, here was this chubby kid who would be anything but a rock star who created this onstage persona and went on to be the leader in the world. It's true. It's true. And the funny thing is, um, parallels between his career and mine is that you have no idea what opportunities are going to spring forth from what, you know, what situations. And you really have to, you know, keep your eyes open and, and you have to want, you have to have a goal and you have to want to achieve this goal. And then you have to recognize when opportunities come along. For me, I moved to New York City with those clippings from my college newspaper, ready to set the publishing world on fire. And it didn't exactly happen that way immediately. Mm-hmm. I ended up typing contracts at Grosset and Dunlap Books uh, which was great because I, I got to really be intimately involved with people's publication contracts, uh, including one of the ones I worked on was Norman Mailer's Marilyn Monroe book back then. I would uh, type up the different uh, foreign agreements when they were with sub-licensing. And I remember sitting there going, oh, my God, I wish I could have my name on one of these contracts one day. Well, I'll be darned if I didn't leave that job after six months. But two years later, I ran into my boss. And she said, what are you, what are you doing at the moment? I said, well... I am uh, doing some freelance writing. I've uh, done a few things for Billboard magazine, Record World magazine. Should they be paying you much? Well, let me see. Uh, $5 a review. <laughs> so I wasn't really setting the world on fire. And she said to me, this was her name was Alice DeReese, and she's still a friend of mine, uh, lives in California. She said to me, Grosset and Dunlap is, is wanting to do some pop music bios. Let's go out to lunch and see who we can come up with who has like a TV connection and hits on the chart at the moment that kids like. And we came up with two titles, Barry Manilow and The Captain and Tennille. And those were my first two books. So the, the moral of the story is you have, don't ever burn a bridge. Right. Um, Alice had ended up firing me from Grasset and Dunlap. She said, obviously, your career is not going to be typing contracts for the rest of your life. Go pursue your writing career. And I'll be darned if it wasn't Alice, who I ran into two years ago, who gave me my start in the book business. So I will always be grateful to her. And, you, you know, we have those angels. I'm sure you have those in your life, too, Joan. Right, right. And so you learned 
the importance of overcoming those rejections and staying the course. For Elton, what was it like for him early? Did he face a lot of rejection? Well, it really, it was, it was something, it was a gradual sort of thing. He uh, originally started out professionally playing music behind different American acts that would come to uh, England to tour, including Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. And he was on stage with, with these acts, whom he highly revered, these American acts that he had their 45s, he had their records in his room. He was very excited about that. But he got to gradually transition into being on stage, being part of the act, making the music, being an important part of show business. And it made him long to step out into the spotlight. But he really didn't know how to do it. And it really wasn't until he met Bernie Taupin, his longtime lyricist and best friend, that he found the missing piece, the missing element. Elton was, was and is absolutely brilliant at composing songs and playing the piano and improvising you know, doing improvisational kinds of things just off, off the cuff. He's so talented at that. But the one thing he couldn't really center on was lyric writing and, and coming up with songs that had meaning. And when he met Bernie Coppin, that gave him the impetus to really express himself on stage and, and give him, you know, story songs to tell. And if you listen to those early Elton John albums, a lot of those songs really told stories. I remember being in high school in uh, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, and my favorite rock group was Three Dog Night. Love mm-hmm. Three Dog Night, uh, mm-hmm. which is a whole other side story, because I ended up doing a great book with Jimmy Greenspoon at Three Dog Night. But one of the songs on their Suitable for Framing album, 1969, was a song called Lady Samantha, written by this unknown guy, Elton John. And I was like, oh my God, I love that song. And then when I first saw the Elton John debut album come out in America, I was like, oh, my God, i got to check this out. So I have really been following Elton's career since before he even had his own releases in America. So it's exciting for me to follow, have followed him to this point where he is, is he's bigger than Elvis in a way. Mm-hmm. He's lasted much longer than Elvis, and Elvis was his big idol. And he hasn't fallen into the same hits uh, and, and dangers that, El- that Elvis did with the drug use, and, and he came, Elton came so close to ending up like an Elvis Presley with a tragic ending, and right. it's, it's inspirational to see how he's dug his way out of that. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. So he had some challenges when it seemed like he had everything in the world. What was happening to him? What did the attention and the stardom do to him, and then how was he able to pull himself out from that? Well, one of the things that he had as pressure is that everyone on the inside of the music business realized that Elton was gay. And Elton couldn't come to terms with this. And, uh, in fact, he had you know, this masquerade marriage to his sound mm-hmm. engineer he did in the, uh, in the 80s. He uh, would pose with women. He would claim to be bisexual, finally. And then, finally, he became comfortable in his own skin and became really a champion for gay rights and, and for stepping up to the plate because of AIDS. And uh, the young uh, AIDS victim, Ryan White, was really an inspiration for Elton. Elton saw someone who had contracted AIDS not through sex or, or risky behavior of any sort, but from a blood transfusion. And uh, he watched Ryan being shunned by society, driven uh, out of his school, out of his hometown. And uh, Elton stepped up to the plate, and this gave him such inspiration to stand up 
and be himself. And it was partially the reason that he sought help to uh, go to rehab and, uh, and, and solve these problems. And now he's an absolute, uh, you know, rehab and anti-substance uh, spokesperson. And he's tried very desperately to keep several of his friends in the business from falling into, into a drug uh, pitfall. Um, one of them that frustrated him the most was George Michael. There was mm-hmm. no stopping George Michael. And, and it's, it's something that frustrates Elton to this day to think of George and how he couldn't help him at all. Do you think it's, you know, the lesson in all of this is that we can find peace when we learn how to live our truth, whatever that may be? I think so. I really think so, especially if you're doing something creative, something that gives you joy, something that gives other people uh, joy of some sort. I think when you find that positive course that you feel really good about, uh, I think that it really it, it magnifies your success. It, it isn't uh, so much an ego boost as a confidence builder. You realize that you are on the right track, that you are doing the right thing. And I think that, uh, that Elton has that sense. And uh, I hope I have this sense. <laughs> Some days I go, what the heck am I doing here? But I think we all do. You know, I think that the path that we're on, uh, once we find a course that uh, is comfortable for us, that, w- that is satisfying, that make us happy, that make people around us happy, I think that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing, and that's something that Elton has definitely achieved. What do you think Elton is most proud of? Uh, I think that he's most proud of his music and his outspoken, uh, his position to be an outspoken uh, proponent of human rights, um, gay rights, women's rights, uh, the rights to be as outrageous as you want. Uh, I think that he's someone who really appreciates where he came from, the struggles that he had to sort of break through out of his shell and, uh, and become the Elton John we know now. He's someone that, uh, I mean, he's, he's amidst this tour, which he calls the farewell tour. I think it's going to be like the share farewell tour. Right. <laughs> Never can say goodbye. Right. Um, I think that he's in love with what he does. He's in love with bringing joy and happiness to the audiences that he performs in front of. And he loves making music. It's his music. It's something he can be proud of. And um, it it makes it a a, a delight for me to write about a subject like this, who has overcome obstacles, who has broken through to uh, a very devoted audience, and who can continue to make his his music and his art at a level that that he has. And it's it's an inspiration. Uh, I don't think he ever set out to be, oh, gee, I'd like to be an inspiration to young musicians. You know, he was just trying to make his own way. But that is very, very uh, definitely what he has become someone who has shown that you can succeed in a difficult uh, business, like show business. Um, and he's, he's very, very proud of what he's done. And, and I am, too. I, I feel like I followed him from the very beginning. It's like, oh, my God. Right. It's, that, we that, feel like we all know him, right? It, yeah, it's exactly, like he's a friend. Exactly. Who right. on the planet doesn't know who Elton John is? Exactly. In a favorable way. In a favorable way. And, and I think this is such a great book. And, and, and once again, that book is Rocket Man. If you would like to learn more about Mark and his work, you can visit markbego.com. That's B-E-G-O, markbego.com. Or as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Mark, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Keep on rock and rolling. Love it. <laughs> I definitely do. If you love the music, uh, definitely keep on, keep rock and roll alive. That's, that's my goal now. 
Lord, thank you so much for joining us and for providing insight into the larger-than-life Elton John. He's flamboyant, he's outrageous, and he's always gifted, and he's been such an integral part of so many lives, mine included. So it was fun learning about him and learning more about you and your work. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.